to No Cartridge Audio. My name is Trevor Strunk, uh, Hagelbond on Twitter, and I'm here with Michael Lutz, uh, who is at Warren is Dead on Twitter and uh, author, among other things, we could talk about all the things you do, <laughs> but author perhaps best known for um, My Father's Long, Long Legs, uh, the sort of, uh, well, we'll call it a video game, but it's it's sort of an interactive fiction in, in, in the classical sense. Um, Michael, thanks for being on. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. Um, I, I really like the episodes that you do, and I uh, look forward thanks. to being able to talk to you about uh, a game that, weirdly enough, a lot of people like don't, a lot of people have played, but a lot of people never ask me to talk about. So, um, really? Yeah, no. So, uh, I would say I've been on, you know, a couple podcasts, uh, but by large, uh, I think the game that I'm most often asked to talk about is the uncle who works for Nintendo. Okay. Um, right. And I think that's probably because that one sort of like came out at a very, that was, it, it came out basically during Gamergate. Um, and it, ended up being kind of accidentally a uh critique of of that whole uh sort of mindset uh in what sort i'm of... sorry this is a very pro gamergate podcast oh no 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 no, no. okay yeah <laughs> um yeah no so i mean i think uh because of like by virtue of what what that game was about and when it was appeared that's the one that most people uh really want to talk about because it blew up really really quickly um and uh it, you know, sort of had like I think it was on like Kotaku. Uh, yeah, no, like yeah. Kotaku linked it and killed my hosting. That was it. Um, <laughs> but then, so, but like this, it's it's kind of the opposite of my father's long, long legs, which was it's still sort of circulating, right? But was um, on its own kind of popular, sort of like not involved with any sort of uh, moment exactly, uh, but has been this kind of weird slow burn. In fact, I think it didn't even really start to take off uh, as a thing until maybe like three or four months after I had posted it. Um, and then, oh, wow. And then somehow it like ended up filtering into Tumblr and from Tumblr, it just kind of took off in its own, like there's like a circle of people on Tumblr, right? Who just like send each other creepy websites or creepy stories. Yeah. Um, and that's really where, like, my father's long, long legs uh, really started to get attention. Um, well, I'm really fascinated by the reception it got because after I, I replayed it and um, I went to go online and, and it's one of those games that in some ways, you know, I guess there are a number of things to talk about here. And we'll talk about how I'm sure you have thoughts on why everyone's so uh, obsessed with uh, the ending or not endingness <laughs> of the ending. Um which I th- I thought was quite nice. I I have a um, I have sort of a, a preoccupation, let's say, with, with endings mm-hmm. uh, in my critical work and also just in stuff I enjoy. And uh, making a good ending is so 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 difficult that I I really appreciate when people kind of commit to one, mm-hmm. uh, regardless of audience uh, expectation. <laughs> uh, so, but like the ending is something people are concerned about. But then also I saw it I saw it on our no sleep. Uh, it came up there when I googled it, um, and then people people sort of treated it as a creepypasta in that way. Mm-hmm. And then, and I saw it on the GameFAQs boards as well. Um, and there, people had a different expectation of it. They actually seemed like pretty terrified of it mm-hmm. in a way that I was not when I was playing it. Not that um, <laughs> that's a critique. Um, I don't feel like the game is going out of its way to make you like terrified in the same way that say something like outlast or resident evil 7 is or whatever mm-hmm. it's not a, a sort of torture test 
but they were treating it as if it might be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was just funny to watch the difference between, like, the Our No Sleep crowd, the Kotaku crowd, sort of Critical Games crowd, and then a crowd that's like, you got to spoil this for me because I'm getting too scared by the <laughs> third paragraph. And, like, it's it's very, it must be really interesting for you as a creator to see the internet get a hold of this in so many different spaces. Because mm-hmm. I think that's kind of um, unique for this game. Yeah, no, um, it, it really is. And I think... Uh, the the anxiety of the of the game facts crowd is understandable to to an extent right because in a lot of ways the the genesis of uh not i guess this story specifically but sort of um the way when i started working in twine uh a lot of things i would uh do is think of like okay here is a here is like a sort of like mechanical way in which a story could work right and i would just wait for a story to sort of fit it um and the mechanical uh sort of or technical idea i came up with um that eventually became my father's long long legs was uh, a screamer but like not a screamer right the old uh you know sort of shock internet sites where it would make you look at something and then like the like a screenshot of uh, the possessed girl from the exorcist shows up on the screen (laughs) and screams at you and makes you jump and so on and so forth Um, i know those all too well right right got me a number of times (laughs) so uh i was like okay so what if i did like a reverse screamer right Mm. a a a sort of story experience um, that would do that thing where it just, you know, lulls you into a certain state, a certain way of thinking. Um, and then when the thing finally shows up, right, it's not quick. It's not just like jump in your face and scream at you. It's a very slow reveal, right? Yeah. Could, could I tell a story like that? Could I do something like that and have it just as scary, right? Yeah, and you sort of you sort of go about that. Actually, that's that's kind of interesting because the 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 people on the boards were saying I, I couldn't help myself but read more about what the people on the boards thought about it. But the uh, the one thing they were saying was like I got as far as the shovel sounds mm-hmm. and I had to stop. And I thought I think the shovel sounds are a perfect example of that reverse screamer technique where like there's nothing particularly shocking or startling about the shovel sounds they can scare you as someone said like if you have your volume up super high waiting for the sound that can startle you um but they're just they're so kind of like foreboding and um they remind me a little bit of um what i always imagined to be the actual sort of effect intended effect of something like the blair witch project before all the hype got up (laughs) where like you sort of have this build up to something that is um mundane but also terrifying yeah um and the, the mundanity of like shovel sounds and then the um, please don't take my sunshine away yeah. in the background is it's scarier at its core to me anyway. And maybe this is what you're we going for. It's scarier at its core, more unsettling at its core than something like those shock sites, which are, of course, not actually like existentially scary. Right. And that's that's exactly what I was going for. Right. Because that's the as a person who does horror stories, um, as a person who's interested in that sort of thing, like that is what I am. Uh, sort of interested in making that's what I'm interested in sort of thinking about is kind of like what does it mean to be like existentially horrified what does it mean to be existentially uneasy rather than like um, you know the pop-up scream you jump um, and then everything's okay which has its time and its place right Um, it's just not like my particular like it's not my particular (laughs) (laughs) hang-up yeah and I think like in some ways it's you know I've talked about uh, weirdly I've talked about creepypasta on this um 
on the show before, and I think there's something there's something kind of interesting about creepy. Sorry, pasta, not yeah. pasta. Um, I, I usually get that right, but in the back of my head, it's always there. <laughs> um, there's something really interesting about it, and I can never quite place what I find interesting about it. And maybe it's what you're explaining, which is that the it, it bridges this kind of gap between, you know, the initial scary thing that people wrote about the on the internet was like the most gory and offensive and, you know, out there sort of horror that they could imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so something like, I guess, classically like Jeff the Killer or whatever, right? right. And then moving on like contemporary people actually writing good stuff um which of course like doesn't always happen on creepy pastas uh creepy pastas but like can happen in uh sort of like more traditional or, or literary forms or, or in fact more non-traditional forms like my father's long long legs the the kind of attempt there seems to be a bridge away from that like saying like yeah okay that was fun but now we kind of have to do something different. Like that kind of moment is over and there needs to be sort of a new moment for horror writing as such. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, it's really interesting uh, that you bring up uh, uh, Creepypasta because uh, like when I first started noticing uh, my father's long, long legs was circling in uh, like Creepypasta websites, right? Like links to it. In fact, I right. think that's kind of, there's there's like a creepypasta fandom on Tumblr, right? There's a fandom for everything on Tumblr. Um, but I think yes. they are like, they are part of that group of people who just like found my father's long, long legs and helped it sort of like launch. Um, and as someone who comes out of, you know, my deep dark secret, right? Who comes out of like the old uh, sort of early to early to mid to late 2000s uh, Chan culture, um, mm. when creepypasta is kind of like becoming born, that was really weird because, uh, to me, creepypasta was always, uh, um, sort of a, a pretense of truth hung about it. Right. Sure. Right. It was right, like yeah. the urban legend thing, or like, um, if you're familiar with MR James's ghost stories, right. He always presents them as, um, these weird little like reports of like stories that he has heard and things like that. Yeah, um, sort of like there's a there's a popular one that I read that actually was quite affecting about um, uh, uh, incidents in national parks. Mm-hmm. Like people sort of set these things up as like I was a park ranger, like you know here are my stories, uh, and we'll you know the, there are even rules about breaking character and stuff like that for sure. Right. No. So that's sort of like what what I understood creepypasta to be was um, something like that. Uh, and in fact, I wrote a creepypasta at one point in, in my my 4chan days uh, that um, sort of observed those rules pretty uh, closely, right? It was written kind of first person. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called Smile Dog. Um, okay. And like that also like has gone on and become its own weird thing. You mentioned Jeff the Killer. Um, yeah, I thought I heard a Smile Dog. Yeah. Actually. So, uh, so a thing in uh, the sort of like expanded creepypasta lore where like uh, Slender Man and everyone is uh, like all of these characters coexist, right? It's like a shared universe. Um, apparently, okay. I, I think I understand this correctly. Smile Dog, the character that I created, um, is the pet of Jeff the Killer. I think in, in, oh. in the expanded like fanon of of creepypasta, right? So wow. Okay. Yes. No. It's weird, right? But neither here nor there. Um, my point being, <laughs> it was surprising to me to be someone who was like, you know, in in the thick of that sort of thing on like the um, the X board, the paranormal board on 4chan right. back before it was all about like globalist anti-Semitic co- conspiracies. Um, I wonder if X is still like it is still sort of like what it was, or if it has also become about oh, it's, globalist conspiracies. It is. It's all globalist conspiracies now. Oh, like I, no, I just like scary globalist conspiracies. Yes. 
Um, (laughs) uh, So, like, back in the day, though, right, when you could just, like, rip off the ring and uh, Photoshop a weird dog picture, um, (laughs) there was this pretense of truth about Creepypasta, right, that you were sort of presenting it as a thing that actually happened. Um, And this was even true on, like, um, the Something Awful boards, which I was also on. I was in the thread where they, you know, quote-unquote created Slenderman. Okay. Um, like I, I was, you know, I loved this shit. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, I mean, it's super, it's super addictive. Like I found, like there's, there's a way in which, I mean, I was never involved in, in, in message word culture in that way. I sort of came into uh, being extremely online in, a, <laughs> in a backwards way. Uh, but um, I read a lot. I read something awful. Um, I would read like the main site, right. which I know is like the exact thing you're not supposed no, to do. No, no, yeah. um, no. Well, you know, if you're on the forums, that's the place you avoid. <laughs> uh, but um, you know, I would also sort of. I got into creepypasta somewhere or another, but like um, there would be nights where I would just find these like, um, you know, emporiums essentially of like certain themes or certain ideas or longer stories. And you can spend hours like just kind of immersing yourself in it. And it's not even that the writing has to be consistently good. It's, it's there's a sort of aesthetic built up. Right. Just among community. Right. Exactly. Um, I think here, right. Of like sort of the something awful, like ghost story threads that we would have on the forums, um, which were very similar to creepypasta and had that same kind of like, you know, I'm I'm maybe not the best writer, but I'm going to tell you this story. And the thing that makes it all hang together is sort of that pretense of truth, right? The idea Mm -hmm. that this could be like a real person, like telling a real story. Um, and so when my father's long, long legs finally started picking up, um, to sort of like roundabout get back to what we were talking about yeah yeah please. Uh, well, that's that's sort of the nature of the show we right? just <laughs> log garden pets um so when my father's long long late started taking off in these circles i was like wait a minute what the hell because there is like no <laughs> way that you would read this story or play this game or however you want to verb it um and like be like oh yeah no this totally was true <laughs> um <laughs> well what i think is what i think is interesting about like to sort of stop you there like the it's kind of funny because I think a lot of the confusion about the ending and about uh, we could spoil my father's long, long legs, because if you don't want spoilers, just stop. It takes about 20 to 30 minutes to play if you're if you're reading everything carefully and making good choices and stuff. And uh, and you can come back. Uh, you should go play it. Just Google it. It's it's out there. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll find actually your site. Your site is always the one that comes up. So yeah. that's pretty remarkable. <laughs> uh, no one's pirated it. Uh, but um what I find so interesting about it is that like, you know, you get to the end and there's this element of like the, the, the giantness of your father in the, in the basement and the fact that he has grown to such heights. Um, and he has this sort of like kind of Nephilim, you know, very old Testament understanding about how the, the world used to be. It's very metaphorical. Like I, you know, I go into stories like this because I'm trained as a literary critic. It's just kind of like natural. I'm like, okay, so like this is a metaphor for something is work that out. But I think in some ways it is a lot like it reminds me of some of the creepypasta stories where like they say, like, I was on a camping trip and I saw a 12 foot tall like thing out there and it's following me or whatever. Um, And I feel like a lot of people's confusion with the ending or confusion with the game itself is that they don't understand. They they aren't reading it as a metaphor. They're reading it as sort of real life. Mm hmm. I think I think that makes sense, right? Uh, I think there is a way that people are approaching this story as kind of a mystery. Uh, mm. That seems to be so. I mean, I I get 
like sort of reader or like fan emails or messages um, every so often. Um, and a lot of them are just, you know, they're very nice things like, oh man, thank you for playing this game, um, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, but then occasionally, and especially with my father's long, long legs, the question I always get is like, what happened? <laughs> and um, I'm just like, I presumably you read it, right? Like the father got really damn tall. Like that's what happened. Like, yeah. I don't know what else to tell you. Like you saw it. <laughs> There's, and I, I think that's kind of like the, the, when I, when I said like what I like about the ending and that you committed to it is that there's no greater explanation of that. Mm -hmm. Like, I think part of what's so beautiful about my father's long, long legs is that, um, and I'm, I'm going to start getting a reputation for, uh, being, you know, way too nice to, to people who come on the show, but <laughs> I only seem to have people who come on the show that I really like their work. Um, what I think is so beautiful about the ending though, and about the game itself is that it's clear that the author, and, and you can take that to mean the the woman uh, narr narrating the piece, mm -hmm. uh, the, the father's daughter, or uh, you yourself, the, the author doesn't actually have like any better sense of why the father is growing or what the sort of mystery the father is unearthing is than anyone else, than the reader does. Like there's a sort of like observational quality. There's a bit of like, there's a discussion of experience. In some ways it's like much more a story about the family than it is the father. Um, but the ending just works because like it refuses to reveal anything like any sort of exposition on why he's growing would seem to me to be completely beside the point. Right. No. And I totally agree. And that was sort of um, that was my way of thinking. Right. Like I didn't want to like have this worked out mythology of like why <laughs> this man was digging in the basement and getting really tall. Um, and I think part of that was uh, I list some. Like I'm always influenced by basically everything I've ever read, right? But uh, at the end, <laughs> sure. at the end of my games, I will uh, list like a like a series of sort of key authors that I had in mind um, while I was making something, right? A kind of like tone that I was trying to approximate or pay homage to, and cool. uh, one of the one of the people that I uh, uh, mentioned for my father's long, long legs is um, the Japanese manga artist uh, Junji Ito. Oh, great. Um, yes. Right. I love Ito. Right. So he's, you know, very famous for um, Uzumaki and uh, various like weird little grotesque shorts that he's written um, that circulate. Mm -hmm. And the thing that always uh, that I always love about Ito's work is occasionally he gets into kind of like this explanatory mode about the weird shit that's going on in his stories. Um, but almost like even when he's being um sort of explanatory or expository right it just feels like a fever dream like nothing makes any real sense right. um and the thing that i love about ito is that and that like his stories can start out as more or less basically realistic and then like this single element right in uzumaki it's just like the idea of the shape of a spiral so in that way it's right. like his ur work right but like um just there's this one weird thing, this like insistently nonsensical thing that refuses to not exist. And it just mm. like pursues the characters um, until usually they die or go crazy or something. Um, and that was sort of what I was interested in, in replicating in my father's long, long legs was this sense of like, uh, well, like a kind of malevolent magical realism, right? Like this is yeah. happening right like there doesn't have to be a reason because like what's more important to these characters is that it's happening <laughs> yeah i i really like that about it because like there's a it, it, the most memorable scenes in it and this is strange for for sort of like a, a body horror story i guess like at its core it's something like that mm -hmm. um but uh, that's probably not quite right um 
what I liked about some of the scenes in it is that like the most memorable moments are when, say, the younger brother uh, brings home a friend and like they can't deal with the fact that the father is down there or like the 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 religious friend says, like, you're all going to hell, hmm. which, you know, is something that happens to people in the world. It happened to me uh, when I was like, you know, eight or nine or whatever, right. some more religious kid. I, I didn't know how to answer his questions. And he told me I was going to hell like this. This is like not an unbelievable moment. But it's all centered around this this extraordinary kind of thing of the father growing taller and digging in the basement. And so it's these these mundan- like, as you say, these mundanities that are um, just a backdrop or that use this totally unbelievable monstrosity as a backdrop to exist. Yeah, no. And that was um, sort of the other angle um, that I was going for here. Uh, and I think actually it was um, Emily Short, who is uh an interactive fiction writer and critic and like, you know, probably one of the best there is really. Um, She picked up my father's long, long legs and she was writing about it. And she basically read it as kind of an allegory for um, dealing with a family member with mental illness or like, I was going to, I read this piece too. I was going to ask you about this. I'm glad you read it. I'm glad you are bringing it up. (laughs) Yeah. um, And I would say that like, that's a good way of, of reading it. Um, It's not, I guess, specifically what I was going for just because, um, I wasn't it, like there's not like a story here where it's like oh yes like uh like my father was mentally ill and he lost his job at the factory and this is just my allegorization of that um right. my dad still works in the factory where he worked when um when I was a kid uh the coffin factory ask actually the the casket oh. factory just and you're a horror writer how surprising I know this is this is a thing I'm just throwing this out here I think it's the first time I've mentioned this on a podcast but I mention it on Twitter every so often I'm like yeah no my dad works in a casket factory and he has since I was a kid and people are like oh <laughs> this explains a lot yeah. right <laughs> um, it's the number one employer in my hometown uh, so gotta have coffins yeah um, so uh, really what this like the sort of emotional mood of the story right um, was what I was trying to communicate which was uh, you know, my my family was really unhappy um, for various reasons, uh, you know, up to and after, like, my parents' eventual divorce. Um, but, like, the, the mood that I was trying to convey was that sense of being a kid and, like, knowing there was something wrong with my family, right? That there was some sort of right. imbalance with the way that my parents interacted with each other and feeling like it was just sort of me and my siblings, Um and not really knowing, like, uh, the, the whole thing about, like, the, the friend coming over, right, was based on my very real fear that, well, actually, I think I actually have basically the narrator um, just says something that, like, I felt, which was, like, I never had any friends over. Because if yeah. I did, I knew that my friends would know something was wrong. Right, right? exactly. And it's, it's you know, my, my folks, uh, weirdly enough, we, we have this in common. I guess it's not that weird. It's probably more and more common. But my folks divorced as well. Um, and there is a quality of like not really knowing what is happening, but knowing that something is happening and it makes the problem so outsized. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I'm glad I, I was fortunate that my folks like divorced quickly. They kind of realized they recognized the the problem and said, like, look, this isn't going to get better and sort of made a decision um, because as you drag it out, it becomes much more outsized and 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 difficult and hard to place and. It's 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 really smart to kind of put that onto something supernatural because of course like that's the best way to explain what a child is feeling at that point too, right? So um, like I think the the mental 
the mental illness reading definitely works. I understand how mm-hmm. that fits in. Um, yeah. But it was never anything quite so specific in my mind. Um, it was more just like that that sense of being a child who is being called to understand something um, that is just sort of like emotionally so much greater than your capacity, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's an interesting way to understand. It's an interesting way to kind of use the uh, the. Well, I want to say Lovecraftian, but in my brain, I keep thinking of, um, uh, oh, I had his name in my head, uh, Aikman, uh, Aik. Oh, Robert Aikman. Robert Aikman. Thank yeah. you. Uh, it, your work reminds me a lot of him really? where like there's, there's this level of there, there's something going on. Um, and the characters never actually put a finger on it. Um, uh, but it's something bigger than them and maybe it's societal, maybe it's supernatural. It's never quite clear. Um, but the, the kind of enormity of the malevolence around them or strangeness around them is never answered and i think that's like that's something that we feel in terms of like anime and society or whatever like it's a it's a way to understand our distancing from our capitalist world or something (laughs) like that but it's also and i think you're you're right to note this like it's also something that we all understand for one reason or another as children right it's really interesting well i appreciate the aikman comparison i would never have uh he He's so much more competent than I am that I would never expect anyone to <laughs> compare me to he's, him. So <laughs> he's brilliant. I I am a real. I mean, I, I always forget his name because like I remember the titles of his books more, which is embarrassing. I mean, they're um, good titles though. Yeah, they're really good. The Wine Dark Sea. Yes. And, uh, Cold Hand yeah. and Mine. Oh, um, but no, I'm a, I'm a huge Aikman evangelist. I I think he's I think he's incredible. Um, and but he does what I what you do that I that both of you do the same thing that I really like, which is the buildup of a sort of um, terror that has no name um, that isn't, you know, in the Lovecraftian sense, like supernatural or beyond the world or something like that. Like maybe it is, maybe it isn't. It doesn't really matter. Um, You know, it could be as mundane as like you discover someone and you can't quite understand them and then they disappear. Um, Right. It's just like it, it's so recognizable. Right. The thing I always appreciate about um, Aikman is like the supernatural always feels very eminent to the world in his mm-hmm. stories rather than being yes. this thing that intrudes it's a thing that the character finds accidentally mm-hmm. um and i yeah, yeah like sometimes literally like stumbles into a glen or whatever right yeah no that's so let me ask you about this then because there's a there's a sort of accidental so to explain the game a little bit to, to people who haven't played it and if you, again if you haven't played it just go play it it takes no time at all it's it's very it's very engaging um but for people who haven't played my father's long long legs uh there's um it starts off as a as basically like a as i say like an interactive story and then there are choices you can make you can click on certain bolded words and and move along very rarely do the choices actually branch out the story Mm -hmm. Um, someone someone uh described it as like there are a lot of choices but you never feel like you actually have a lot of agency which i thought was um a fairly good (laughs) i don't know if you would agree but i thought that was a fairly apt uh thing to say um I would agree. I would say that's probably intentional on my part. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I, I, I thought it was, like, especially towards the end. So the the story is about your father who starts digging a hole in the basement uh, suddenly and for no reason. He gives certain reasons initially, but they all kind of like, you know, he keeps digging and digging and digging and eventually just says, like, there's a world beneath this world. Like, we used to be giants and I'm going to dig away the dirt of ages to find the old world. Um and it doesn't ever really like you never really see him again. There's like there's an uncle that visits. There are certain things that happen. But ultimately, it's about your family breaking apart, moving away from your father who keeps digging. Um, and at the end of the game, 
through a various series of events, you go back to your home um, and you come sort of face to face with what your father has created. Um, and that trip home is the part of the story. You know, we've, we've talked about the beginning part of the story in terms of family. The second part of the story is really the sort of like supernatural agential part. Um, particularly the switch that's made. So there are a couple of switches that are made at the end of the game. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about them, but like there's the flashlight switch mm -hmm. where you can't see everything on the screen. There's the sound switch and there's the illustration that happens at the end. Right. Uh, so I don't know if any of those or all of those are important to you or if you want to speak to them at all, but I found all three really, really uh, impactful. Um, well, uh, so I would love to speak about them. Um, I would say I think they are maybe... I mean, they're, they're definitely, I think, part of the core of why people respond to the game so strongly, that sort of switch out that I made. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, you know, partly because uh, that happens partly because, like, I was making this story entwine and I was like, okay, so uh, what could I do that would benefit this story, right? Why is this, mm -hmm. why, because when I first really got the germ of the idea for the plot of what would become my father's long, long legs, um, it was just a story idea, right? I wrote it on, I have it, actually, I still have it somewhere, I think, like a scrap of paper um, where I just, like, wrote down, like, father digs in basement for no reason or something. Um, <laughs> and it was just like, okay, this is like a premise to a story. Um, and then later on, when I was thinking about um, sort of Twine and what that could do, because I discovered Twine in uh, 2013, um, which was, I made uh, My Father's Long Long Legs in the fall of that year. Uh, okay. And I made my first game, The Tower of the Blood Lord, in the summer of that year, I think in June of that year. Um, and so I, it was my second outing, and I had the, the first game, The Tower of the Blood Lord, was very much a uh, sort of what can Twine do, what, how can I animate all this text kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. And then uh, My Father's Long Long Legs became a kind of, um, you know, how, how, how technically weird can I get with this uh, game creation device? Right. Um, and part of me was thinking about how to do that reverse screamer, because, um, again, that's where that idea kind of comes in. Um, sure. So I was thinking like, OK, so, uh, you know, the thing to really do for a reverse screamer would be to, like, have people still see an image, but to have it fade in slowly and have it just as weird and creepy. How does that work? Um, and that's where I got sort of the illustration of the father's legs. Um, this idea. It's really great. <laughs> yeah, this idea of. Um, you know, wandering in the dark with a flashlight um, and just, like, turning to see, you know, just something, right? A hint of something, just a part of something that is, again, so much larger than could possibly be shown on the screen. Um, and then I realized, like, oh, with, um, you know, the way Twine works and the way HTML works, I could totally just have um, a, like, flashlight picture, like, that tracks the mouse cursor's movement, um, and have that like you know toggled to the background of the html page and everything else could be black and i could you know basically use this to make it look like you're navigating a three-dimensional space even though you're just clicking hyperlinks um, right so that's where i and i decided that um that's where i wanted this to go but i didn't want it to start there um because i guess a recurring theme in, in a lot of games that i make um and this is just something i've noticed is i'd like to do like I just the way I tend to imagine games, the way I tend to structure these things, um, is like a, a sort of introductory period, and then I do a sort of like generic switch up, or like mm -hmm. I just like to. So my first game, The Tower of the Blood Lord, starts out as a text adventure conversion of a Call of Duty game, <laughs> um, 
and then uh, after a certain point, it sort of like uh, switches out and becomes a um, weird fantasy where you're like helping a bunch of forest animals uh, fight this thing called the Bloodlord. So this is a okay. thing that I this is a thing for me, right? Is like trying to like mash uh, different styles of play or like different genres together. Um, and so in a way, when I got this idea for uh, my father's long, long legs and like the flashlight and like descending into the maze that is not really a maze because you're just clicking links, I was just like, hell yeah, like this is everything that I want to try to do uh, with this second story, right? Sort of like artistically or aesthetically and also like technically. Um, it gives me mm. something to try to work toward. Yeah, and I, I thought there's a, you know, there's a quality to the maze that is so different than the previous sections because the you know the previous sections have so few choices um by design and you know there are a couple of moments where you can pick different things i i went back another time through and clicked through the various uh excuses that the father had for digging the hole since i clicked the bottom link first and, and went past that mm -hmm. um but ultimately you sort of you get all the stories you get most of the stories through one playthrough uh as far as that goes i i think and um, i could be wrong uh, but then once you get to the maze, you're all of a sudden given all of these choices, right? You right. can go left, you can go right, you can go towards the, the sound of the digging, you can call for your brother, um, you can click other different words that kind of like might explain the scene a little bit more. Um, and the initial thing that I felt, and maybe this isn't for everyone, but what I felt playing through it, I was like, oh man, there are so many choices. Like, <laughs> how am I possibly going to get like completion here? Right. Um, and about two or three clicks in that just goes away because you get that sort of panic, the digging, the flashlight urges you on in a way of like, okay, I just got to get through this. I got to get through this. I got to get to like, what's going on. There's an urgency there. That's kind of remarkable for the fact that it's like just text. <laughs> <laughs> it's more urgent in some ways than like some like survival horror games where it's like, okay, I can wait. I can like collect the keys and get all the Easter eggs in the moment of like the final moments of my father's long, long legs. It's like, I got to get like towards the digging. I don't know where my brother is. I don't know what's happening. Um, and you just start clicking through. It, it does induce this kind of panic. Well, that's really cool. I had never quite heard it um, sort of described in that way uh, by a reader player, whatever you want to call yourself. Oh, cool. Um, <laughs> because like, I mean, definitely um, I wanted it to be kind of tense. And at the same time, like, uh, you know, when I was making this, like, there was a point in time in, in sort of the design where I wanted to make it, like, an actual maze. You know what I mean? Okay. Um, yeah. Currently, it's not. What there is is that there is a series of um, passages um, that are sort of all interconnected, right? Every passage leads to every other passage. Um, and there's a counter working in the background, and every time you move through um, one of the passages, uh, that counter goes up. And after so many uh, passages, um, you're automatically shuttled into the ending. Um, right. The reason I ended up doing this is because uh, I realized that, like, if I um, if I made this a real maze, right? If I made this a real puzzle, like a real sort of like I need to sit down and start mapping this thing out. Um, well, first of all, it was going to be a lot more work for me. Um, <laughs> yeah. But second of all, like I ran the risk of um, the reader uh, sort of getting bored or getting frustrated and going away and breaking uh, everything that I had worked so hard to build up until that point. And really like what this entire story is, is a delivery mechanism for like that ending moment of seeing the father's long, long legs. Right. Um, exactly. Right. And so I didn't want to really thwart that. So I was like, okay, I will, I will create something that feels like it could be a real maze. Um, and then maybe hopefully signals to the person playing 
uh, enough, like far enough in that, like, no, you just have to give yourself up to this and like see what's happening. Um, and that's almost exactly how it worked for me. So very, very well done as far as <laughs> nice, that goes. nice, great. Yeah, no, that's I, I I'm going to give you the rare occasion of saying like it all worked. You, you <laughs> great. Um, no, I mean that's great, and and yeah, there's something. I don't know, like it, it, it's a very interesting game in terms of the question. Let me let me actually ask the question. Like the game forwards this question of like what exactly is a game, and you know games do this without you know intending to or mm-hmm. without having the sort of like broader idea at heart or whatever. Like I'm not trying to put a uh, uh, a manifesto on on your work here, yeah. uh, but it does sort of like force you to think. Okay, what 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 is gained by this game being only in text and what would be lost or gained if it were um uh visual as well mm-hmm. um and you know the deeper question there is what's the difference between kind of an interactive fiction or a game right uh and i'm i'm personally not very sure but i'm wondering if you as a designer have like and a writer and sort of like someone on the more creative end of things have a um a thought as far as that goes um so, like, so sort of disappoint you. I, I don't exactly. No, that's fine. <laughs> right, I, it doesn't disappoint me at all, actually. Right. Um, it tends to be better if uh, artists aren't thinking the same things as critics, because then it just becomes kind of de rigueur and it's no fun. Right. No, I mean, like, my problem is I'm I'm an academic too, right? Like. Oh sure, right. Yeah, I, you have you have, you wear two hats. Right. So I I work I do um early modern drama, which is to say just Shakespeare and stuff. Um. But like to me, all fiction is interactive. Like that—that mm. that doesn't make it. Yeah, it, sure. That's me being a little bit obtuse right there intentionally. But like, you know, I I sort of cut my teeth um on when I cut my teeth on a sort of like introductory theory. A lot of it was like reader response theory, right? That's what I was really okay. into. I was reading a lot of Umberto Eco, and I was thinking about this is you know maybe when I'm like this has got to be like starting in like mid undergrad when I really started getting into this stuff. Um, yeah. When they introduced your theory. Right. Um, so dangerous time. (laughs) So I was reading a lot of like reader response theory, a lot of Umberto Eco, a lot of Stanley fish. Um, and so one of the things I'm always thinking about is the way in which like the text, um, in whatever sort of form it takes, either as a book or as a thing that you're reading, um, the text is sort of calling upon the reader to like do something to like imagine something to interact with it in a certain way um and so like i i I was a fiction writer right for as long as i can remember i just you know wrote stories um and i you know published a couple of them um and then it really wasn't i wasn't terribly successful um but then Mm -hmm. when i was in grad school and sort of twine came out i was like oh here's a thing that i can sort of do instead of like writing a regular story i'll see what i can do with kind of like choice and like movement of text and things like that um and so really like games and like interactive fiction and regular fiction all kind of run together for me um if only because i tend to approach even like normal static text as kind of a um a sort of like rhetorical cultural game of like trying to imagine like where is the author speaking from at a point in time where am i reading from at a point in time what intervenes that sort of thing well it's no wonder that you you uh, gravitated towards early modern drama then because of course that's deeply participatory yes. and also very genre bending yes um if people haven't read uh deeply into early modern drama like i'd even i'd even 
maybe this is maybe this is the the sort of like academic in me talking and i've i've been accused of suggesting bad things for people because they're <laughs> too dense uh but i think a lot of that early uh early modern drama that's not shakespeare and shakespeare too yeah. of course but like the the weird stuff the sort of like stuff on the margins is so interesting and strange uh right it's like super worth reading right right no um like have you read like night of the burning pestle no i've not I, the 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 furthest i've kind of gone out i'm a contemporary americanist okay. so like i'm yeah i i swear i i've dabbled um i've taught shakespeare yeah. but uh the um the furthest i've gone out outside of him is uh like the the weird kind of genre pieces like tis pity she's a horror oh, yes. and uh revenger's tragedy and yeah stuff yeah like yeah that. no that's good stuff um I, oh yeah 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 i mentioned but tell me about tell me about the pestle okay yeah so the night of the burning pestle by um francis beaumont is the most delightful weird play i think in the in the early <laughs> modern canon so <clears throat> how it begins uh, is it begins with an induction as many of these plays do where um some representative of the theater company is going to come out and be like hey folks like here's what's going to happen like don't smoke too many cigarettes and throw oranges at us right that sort of, the sort of thing that people in the early modern <laughs> right. theater did um so the induction is going on and a grocer who is sitting at, who is like, or actually he's a groundling, um, a grocer who is at the front of the stage, like crawls up on stage and he's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Um, like, what's the story that you're telling? And then his wife comes up and then their apprentice comes up and they're like, we want to see a more interesting story than the one that you're telling. Like, put our apprentice in it because we like him. Give us a story that has <laughs> like a knight and like great battles and like make him a hero like that's what we want and they like force the company to take their apprentice in um <laughs> and then they sit down on the stage and they watch the play happening and they keep like the like the londoner family right keeps like commenting on the that's action so and like interrupting it and like their apprentice keeps showing up and be it's like the 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 play that it's supposed to be is called supposed to be called i think like the london merchant or something like that um and it's just like your normal city comedy of like oh no i need to get my daughter married um but like the the um grocer and his wife keep like interrupting to such an extent that like you get this gigantic um like mock battle scene that is totally a direct parody of Shakespeare's Henry V. Like oh nice, Wait, even with like the Saint Crispin's Day speech and all. Um, it's it's a parody of of that. Like you can like like reading the speech, you can see where Beaumont is like mocking um <laughs> mocking That's Henry V. Really funny. Um, and then like uh the apprentice whose name is Rafe, like he dies. Um, he gets killed in the battle, but then he comes back as a ghost. Uh, <laughs> and and you know it, it all it all works out in the end right everyone um you know sort of you know becomes friends and so on and so forth uh but it's this incredible thing to read uh because uh especially if um if you're like just starting out in early modern stuff or if it's in like a uh you know, early modern survey course or something like that. Uh, because it's this moment for a lot of people of like, wait a minute, like <laughs> people, people in the like 16th and 17th century had irony. Right. Right. Well, <laughs> it's, it's the drama equivalent of when uh, a, a Victorianist, um, a wonderful Victorianist I worked with in my PhD, Anna Cornblue, uh, would like, she, she, I worked with her a lot and she would, uh, she would chastise me when I talk about like, postmodernism or like the the sort of like contemporary novel or whatever and she's like what's the difference between that and tristram shandy like you got to read tristram shandy right and for a while i thought she was just like you know pull my leg or whatever um and then when i read tristram shandy i was like oh yeah no this is like she's right like there's 
got to reckon with this because this is right as weird and sort of like self-referential as anything out there. Um, right. Yeah. And like the early modern is full of that. Obviously, Tristram Shandy's not exactly not early modern, but like, yeah, um, the early modern also is like super preoccupied with that. It's super preoccupied with like, well, what does it mean to be an audience member? What does it mean to be an actor? Right. Where's the distinction? Right. No. And that's um, definitely like the thing that sort of uh, really draws me in as someone like living in the present time, um, mm. because one of the reasons these questions are so sort of prominent and this is to an extent, right, this is what my dissertation is about, um, is about the theater as a new medium um, okay. in uh, in a in a very particular way that remains sort of under theorized because everyone talks about like, oh, you know, so prior to. Um, let's say like you know you know like 1550 1560 or whatever uh you don't really have the theater as an institution in the way that we think of it we don't have theater as a place a building that you go because theater is necessarily a kind of marginal activity carried out by traveling troops or like by the community during um festivals and things like that um theater is not in itself like a, a standalone entity um and then when you get uh the like public commercial theater as a building in the early modern period, um, my argument goes, uh, you get uh, a kind of like media anxiety mm. about what does it mean um, for this thing to kind of exist publicly to kind of like tell stories or to tell people stories or to allow people to tell stories about themselves and rethink their relationships to one another and blah, 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 all this stuff. Um, that weirdly enough, right, um, and a friend of mine um, who's another uh, early modernist, uh, Matthew Harrison, we, we talk about this all the time, um, you get this really strong contingent of Protestant anti-theatricalists. Sure. Um, right um who are talking about sort of like the moral deficiencies of the theater and how it makes you a worse person and so on and so forth um and it all echoes uh like video game criticism <laughs> in in the weirdest damn ways right uh it's this preoccupation with kind of like um the multimodal nature of the theater right there's so much going on in the theater there's music there's sound there's costumes there's visuals um there's that and it like lulls you into this like false sense of like immediacy that mm. then becomes you know like the devil's back door into your soul um, right right but uh so we get a lot of that in um you know sort of anti-video games like criticism right like these murder simulators um <laughs> right but we, of course right right but we also get it in kind of like uh you know more positive video games criticism um because like people are trying to figure out how the fuck to talk about video games because of the same sort of problem that the theater was difficult to talk about because it um, is multimodal in a way, right? It uh, recapitulates um, sort of other distinct like cultural institutions in ways that are difficult to talk about um, in sort of the moment. Uh, so that's like, that's the weird like way by which um, I started out as just like an early modernist and I was just going to do early modernist stuff. And then in my spare time, I was like sort of writing some game things on my blog and like making games. And then I was like, oh, actually, here's how these two things link together. <laughs> right. Well, right. yeah, I, it's funny because it speaks to sort of the, the quality of um, what we were talking about in terms of like they're not exactly being a moment where irony happened um you know sometime around 1975 uh you know the this is what happened to me too where like i just started doing video game stuff in my spare time and eventually i ended up doing a chapter in my dissertation on it so you know it is this it, it it's absolutely i think you're you're dead on in thinking that like 
the the problem with video game criticism or like the difficulty in video game criticism is that no one quite knows what language to put to it Mm -hmm. um and any language they sort of like fit it into kind of limits it in unproductive ways um it seems to me that that that's very true about theater too uh whenever any sort of like uh critic of the novel talks about theater it's always kind of uh flat um (laughs) it, it it needs more it needs more dimensionality i guess is is a kind way of saying it um and it's also like it's also this sort of um, empathic space. Uh, one of the one of my favorite, and I always forget. Uh, it's a uh, someone Levine. Um, I I always thought it was Philip Levine, but uh, that or Phil Levine, but that ended up not being true. He's outside of my my purview, so okay. he may be like an extremely famous scholar, but I always forget him. Um, so apologies to him. I'm sure he's <laughs> feeling fine in his tenured job. Uh, no, he's listening. He's listening right now. <laughs> I hope so. Uh, I hope he emails me. Uh, <laughs> But uh, he wrote a book about uh, the the sort of like um, incipience of uh, Shakespearean theater into uh, American society, like 18th and 19th century American society. Oh, is it is it is it Michael Bristol? It might be. Yeah. Did he this write is, a book about that? Uh, this is I mean, this is one of the thing. Uh, there are several people who have written a book that this may describe. Um, sure. But this is the guy that I know because sure, he's, like a big, he's a big he's a big Bakhtinian dude. OK, I buy it. Uh, yeah. It sounds like it could be like there's yeah. I'm sure he tells the same stories because like the the stories about the the incipience of, of Shakespeare into America are fascinating um, because, of course, like and this is something I read in undergrad when I was sort of cutting my teeth on theory. Um, like there's there's this way that you imagine Shakespeare to be this sort of stuffy affair, especially when you're in high school. And that's as, you know, as cliche as anything else, like you eventually realize that the language is et cetera, et cetera. You know, this is what my dad does. My dad's an actor. And a lot of what he does is he'll go or one of the things he does is he'll do Shakespeare with like fourth and fifth graders. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the point is, you know, like it's all about the language. You can understand what's going on. Right. And it shocked their parents. Um, <laughs> it, it's become kind of old hat at this point, but you still think it. And when you learn that, like, or when I learned that America kind of took on Shakespeare with this, with this passion, right. They were super into it in the same way mm-hmm. that say they're like the public is into superhero movies now or whatever. Right. Um, I was super surprised. And one of the things that surprised me, among other things, I mean, there's a million things I could talk about with this book, um, which always makes me ashamed that I can't think of the author. So let's say it's Michael <laughs> Bristol. Um, the one story in it, uh, though, that always strikes me is, I'm sure, an apocryphal or potentially apocryphal, very popular story about um, a, a production of Othello, where uh, at the end of Othello, spoilers for Othello, uh, Othello is uh, murdering Desdemona. Uh, and this American audience member jumps up on stage and separates the two people. Uh, right. Because he's so, like, worried. He's so upset by the ending. And it's a very upsetting ending. Like, it's, you know, you know as the audience member that Desdemona did do it, that, like, mm-hmm. you know, she's innocent and Othello is overreacting based on jealousy and, you know, bugs put in his ear or whatever. Um, but it's not something we, we understand. As audiences, we can't jump up and stop the action on the stage. Uh, but there's this moment where this wire is crossed and he's like, no, this can't happen. Right. Um, and it speaks to a lot of things. But one of the things it speaks to is this empathic quality of of both video games and theater where, like, you end up feeling the same way as the people on stage, even if you don't want to. Right. Um, you know, I think the book that you might be talking about, I'm not sure because this, this this story you write comes up, like, all the time forever. Oh, yeah. Like, it's, it's, it's <laughs> everyone a has, story. Like, I think I mention it, right? Of course. Um but I think the book you're talking about might be Shakespeare's America, America's Shakespeare by Michael Bristol, I think. Okay. Yeah. Because that's, I, that, that's sort it. of the argument of his book. Um, 
But uh, yeah, no, that's so. What's really startling to me about that, right, is um, <clears throat> the the sort of way in which uh, the theater is uh, always figured as as this kind of immediate thing, uh, both by its detractors and by its um, sort of uh, like proponents in the early modern period. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mentioned that there was this there's this very rich discourse of anti-theatricalism. Um, that was basically predicated on this idea that by it was sort of a um it was an out it's an outgrowth of a kind of augustinian platonism right the idea that uh the thing that you're seeing on stage is a representation it's not real it's distracting you from god um that sort of thing and this also comes out of the fact that like historically um in like Roman and Greek culture, uh, theater was explicitly sort of like it had, it were not really explicitly, but like often had a religious valence. Um, right. Right. So in this, like if you read Augustine, right. When he's talking about like when he was young and sinful, like he fucking loved going to the theater cause it made him super horny. <laughs> the, um, the first, the first six chapters of Augustine where he's having a good time. Yeah. Yeah. No. And he's just like, I love going to the theater because it, it was like super sexy, I guess. Right. Um, <laughs> Like that's sort of the, the the way he talks about it. Hey man, um, you know whatever gets whatever gets you going. Right. So the anti theatricalists um like resume this, and I just I I happen to have this like open because I had a, a chapter open yesterday where I was looking for something, nice. so I'll read this so you can get the kind of way that the anti theatricalists talk about the theater. Um, this was from a pamphlet called um called This World's Folly, and it was published in 1615. Um, the author is known only as I H. Um, but he says that playgoers, and I quote, set open their ears and eyes to suck up a variety of abominations, bewitching their minds with extravagant thoughts and benumbing their souls with insensibility, whereby sin is become so customary to them as that to sin with them is deemed no sin at all. Um, right. So it like, right. It like the theater, like just destroys your capacity for moral judgment because you get to this point where you can't tell like what is like a real show of sin versus like a like because you see fake sin represented so much you don't take sin seriously basically mm-hmm. is kind of the underlying thought um but the proponents of the theater uh basically make the same argument but like but it's good <laughs> <laughs> um so the the big guy here is um Thomas Haywood uh who um sort of close to when um, IH is writing, uh, wrote, writes this thing called The Apology for Actors. And he writes that uh, what happens in the theater is when the spectator sees, like, virtue represented, like, it's represented so well that it reforms the mind and the heart of the spectator, right? Mm. It makes you feel sympathy with um, the with the virtuous in such a way that it makes you more virtuous, which is, of course, its own kind of, um, this is its own sort of adaptation of, like, a humanist argument for, like, why we should read Virgil and things sure, like that. of course. Um, but, uh, right, so like there's this weird tension in um anti-theatrical and pro-theatrical discourse where basically both of them agree about how the theater works and this is don't agree about the results right and this is like again this is like part of my dissertation is sort of like my argument is that this is kind of like what we're seeing is um a sort of like media criticism trying Mm -hmm. to formulate itself of like what the fuck is this thing called the theater and what does it do to us right I like and 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 you know all all apologies to Matt because he's become sort of like the 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 
uh, lurking signifier of this podcast. Um, but when I talked to Matt Chrisman uh, many episodes ago, and also um, uh, Kemal Altamini, uh many episodes ago, uh, Matt's initial argument against gaming was something along these lines, where it's like, what it does is makes you stop realizing what the real world is because you have all these representations and like you don't actually get a chance to exist with real people you're always existing with virtual people Mm -hmm. um that's oversimplified but it's somewhat close um and camel's argument was no 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 it's actually like there's a real community there yes it's all virtual but there's a communality that's really important uh whether or not you're playing it with your friends in a room or you're just like interacting with like a space that someone else has created um and it really does become like, you know, the the crux seems to be like, it's not about what happens when you play something like, say, I don't know, like I, I'm working my way through it. So this comes to mind, but something like Nier Automata mm-hmm. um, provokes a lot of reactions and everyone sort of agrees, like it provokes a sort of emotional reaction from you. Um, the argument seems to be like, is that bad? Because it's sort of like a cartoon and you should be worried about more serious things in the world or is it good because it makes you think about, you know, serious sort of existential issues um, mm-hmm. kind of through a backdoor of your emotions? Um, it's fascinating how that, la- that lines up. Right. No, I actually so I listened to, to the episode with Matt um, mm-hmm. and when I was listening to it, I was like, oh, man. So here's like here's like his resumption of the anti-theatricalist argument. Right. Me right. sitting smug in my uh, academic ivory tower. Um <laughs> Hey, it's uh, okay. It's nice being in the academic ivory tower. I right. sometimes wish I was back. <laughs> um, but no, I um, no, I I totally sort of see those um, sort of connections, and um, I I guess like one of my things, right? The way I approach this in my dissertation is uh, I work with a lot of post what they call posthumanist theory. Okay. Um, so a lot of this, a lot of uh, Bruno Latour is deeply influential for me, and I don't know how familiar you, you are with his work. I'm, I'm pretty familiar with Latour, yeah. Okay, okay. So um, uh, my sort of response to this issue is like, you know, uh, like resuming the media studies angle is this uh, discussion about um, the theater between anti-theatricalists and pro-theatricalists or the playwrights or whatever. Um is you know on the one hand like a discussion of like what does this like media technology do or what can it do um but sort of from my latorian perspective like one of my points here is that like basically like what is happening here is kind of like an argument for how do we incorporate um this new actant of the theater into kind of our social and political economy Mm -hmm. um how does this sort of fit in um and the the underlying idea being that like you know every like there are representations all over and things can be virtual. Um, but like representational things are still real, right? Virtual things are actually real, right? They make a difference, right? Right. Hamlet, Hamlet isn't real, but you can't tell me that Hamlet hasn't caused like a fuck ton of shit in in 400 years. Right. Um, I mean, Hamlet as a figure in the world, may be less real than me, but he's certainly much more influential than me. Right. Um, and so like from my kind of like Latorian spin on this is that it becomes not so much, um, an issue of like oh like the rep like the sort of like almost like marxist platonism of um <laughs> how you get lulled into uh this endless shadow show of representations um because there's nothing outside the shadow show right it's about mm-hmm. sort of like um like becoming just cognizant enough to like work within and manipulate the shadow show in order to like cast different shadows new shadows new ways of thinking um 
and new ways of uh, sort of imagining how you might inhabit a social world, which is kind of like what my dissertation ends up arguing, right, is that the theater becomes this kind of uh, very pointed uh, way in which people um, like can imagine uh, themselves as like actors, mm-hmm. as people who assume parts, um, who don't, who aren't necessarily um, unified um, in in, a, in any sense of like a, a individual like human subjectivity right like they're yeah. that like they come to imagine subjectivity as kind of like a fractured thing um of all of the parts that we play and this of course is its own sort of issue because this uh, arguably leads into kind of like um incipient like mercantile capitalism and like sort of the, the roles we have to play for the market so in one way i'm also very sympathetic to what matt was talking about right there is a way in which capital really uh is adept at co-opting these sure. new technologies well, that's what it does right (laughs) um but also like i i don't think the solution is necessarily to just like throw all of the technologies into the ocean um because you can't put the genie back in the bottle uh right um you've got to figure out like how to work with what you got well i think what's interesting thinking about this problem of um you know basically two sides arguing the same thing except with a different interpretation of the results which i think is a fascinating uh, heuristic for what it's worth um i don't i don't know i don't know how common it is in the early modern maybe but if it's if it's yours specifically it's really cool um even if it's not it's cool though uh, <laughs> i mean so other other authors have made sort of similar points um but uh you know i'm, I'm the one who's saying it right now so but i will okay. i will like name drop um because she's on my committee actually ellen mckay um who has a okay. book called persecution plague and fire um that is deeply influential for me. It's an excellent book. And it is basically her reading um, the early modern anti-theatricalists as um, like basically using them as a method for like building an early modern uh, theater criticism. Right. Yeah. Right. So um, in that way, like, you know, I try to carry forward her argument to like my particular like philosophical like hang ups or whatever. That's great. Yeah. No, I'd say it. Well, Man, we could get we could get really into the weeds with this, uh, <laughs> but no, that's uh, I'll 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 avoid that by saying that's great. That sounds that sounds excellent. Um, it really does sound great though. I but I like that heuristic, and, and one of the reasons I like it is because it 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 really does cast a long shadow in you know thinking about what you just said versus what Matt just said or Matt said a while ago. You know Matt's argument, um, Christmas argument, uh, since we've had multiple Matts on the show, is um. <laughs> is about like it's a sort of like negative Debordianism, uh mm-hmm. to be to be sort of obtuse about it you know it's this idea that the spectacle exists in the world that um you know we can't stop the the sort of society of spectacle and that like it will always envelop what we do and who we are um and that's a pessimistic version but yours is more of like a uh and, and latours in a way is like this too where like it's the same sort of observation that like yes the spectacle exists representation is as real as you know flesh and blood um but we can work with that yeah uh, and that's like you know whether or not basically the 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 hinge there is whether or not you think you can work with it um and i think that's like a fascinating way of reading that problem because of course if you think you can work with it then video games take on this enormous potential mm-hmm. um as like as we see in the way that you sort of like reformulate narrative in my father's long long legs like that's a way of playing uh, with um, spectacle and expectation and media expectation that I think perhaps um, Chrisman wouldn't be as uh, gung ho about. 
Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to like toot my own own horn and say that like I'm some sort of like revolutionary artist, but like I do (laughs) see, um, I don't think of myself as like the person who's like, ah, reformulating the spectacle. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it is a thing that like concerns me, especially as an artist. Um, yeah. cause like my first game, I already mentioned this was called the tower of the blood Lord. Um, and it was a thing that was made like in a time of just so like, basically this is why I started making games, right? It was just complete frustration mm. with, with, um, sort of the world and specifically like what games were. Um, because I had like, it was the summer of 2013, uh, Bioshock infinite had just happened. Oh, no. Um, and like, for what it's worth, right, I love the original Bioshock, right? It has its problems, but, like, there is just sort of, like, when it came on the scene, like, I was so into that. Um, oh, I played the whole thing. Yeah, right? I, I'll copy I, that. Right. I And I just I just sort of, like, I love sort of the premise, like, even if it's not, like, lived up to necessarily, like, it's just it's just a cool thing. Um, so I was really interested in seeing what happened with Bioshock Infinite when it kind of uh, could just go really hog wild. Um and then I played it and I'm like, man, this sucks. I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was so frustrated that I was like, I'm going to make my own game. What's this twine thing that I've been playing around with? Okay, um, I'm going to remake Call of Duty. And then I like got so far into that and I'm like, I'm bored with remaking Call of Duty. Now it's going to be like a fantasy story about helping forest creatures. <laughs> um, and that ended up being um, like a kind of, you know, that ends up being a kind of reflection on like, because I saw myself doing it, uh, my reflection on like sort of my own relationship to kind of like gaming, like quote unquote culture, yeah. gamer culture, um, <laughs> and sort of like what do these what do these stories ask us to do in the world, right? Are these stories that ask us to go to like um, you know Vegastan and uh, blow up some people, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like what and specifically the sort of stuff that like you know Chrisman is talking about. Um, you know why? What do we do right when when the the sort of most prominent um, I guess titles, franchises, uh, studios are putting out these stories that are just like frankly not stories that I'm interested in being a part of anymore. Um, yeah. And so what happens when I start telling my own story about? Well, this is how boring I find Call of Duty, and now I'm going to make you help these forest creatures. Not even because I particularly like it, right? But because I want something different. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's interesting. And it's, it also introduces that kind of like anxiety of influence that happens in terms of art where like not anxiety of influence, but anxiety of uh, production where like, mm-hmm. it, you know, midway through it's like, what am I doing here? What does this mean? What am I up to? Um, and, you know, through your creative process, you work it out, which I think is something that like in larger game studios is almost completely polished over. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, um, I'm gonna cut it there because we've we've talked quite a bit. I don't wanna I don't wanna get too far uh, down a down a line that we yeah. uh, end up with a three hour episode. Although I would like that. I was um, gonna say we're not gonna do like the Scott Benson four hour extravaganza. You know, it, it's it's <laughs> like it's like with Scott, um, and I'll keep this in because Scott will know it's a compliment. Like uh, with Scott, it's just a. Uh, it goes, man. Like it just it it doesn't stop. <laughs> no, Most it does. of my episodes are about this, but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, no, no, I, I could keep going, but it would end up being um, it would end up being the literary criticism podcast that I wish I could do. Right. Um, but no one in their right mind would listen to. Um, I'd love to I'd love to hear your thoughts. Eventually, we should talk some other time uh, yeah. on Twitter or here or whatever about um, posthumanism, because I, yeah. I have I have some thoughts on that, too. Uh, we probably end up disagreeing on that, at least, which might be interesting. Oh, OK, um, I wrote a little bit about it in um, 
in a chapter I had on Blood Meridian, but um, okay. mostly mostly sort of skewed towards the deep environmentalists in that one. Okay. Um, but that's sort of, again, getting too deep into the leads. Um, <laughs> but thank you, Michael. Uh, this was really cool. This was this was fantastic. Uh, yeah, great time. Where can where can your games be found? Where can uh, where can people find your stuff? Or your writing or anything you want them to see. Okay. So, um, again, I am, I holler a lot on Twitter. I am at Warren is dead. Um, my personal blog is correlatedcontents.com. There will be a link there that, um, collates all of my games. Um, and my games, uh, well, sort of my, uh, biggest game the uncle who works for nintendo and what is going to be hopefully my next game which is still in process i'm writing it chapter by chapter month cool. by month um and there's a demo up now called ladder uh that can be found on my itch.io page which is just i believe um Zdool, which is my last name backwards z-t-u-l um <laughs> dot itch dot io like that's my that's my page and also i have a patreon if you want to if you want to give me money like a yep. dollar a month it's it, patreon Patreon.com slash Zdul, Z-T-U-L, last name backwards. Definitely. give You know, it's, it's um, let me say it from experience. It is very difficult to justify doing things that aren't your dissertation when you're a graduate student. Um, but if you have good stuff to say, like Michael does, it is important that it be justified. So please donate to his Patreon. Help him. That is, yeah, that's why the Patreon exists, is I was like, the, the dissertation is eating my life, and I need a I need an excuse to do something that is not this. <laughs> yep, that's why I started my Patreon well before the podcast existed. Uh, so definitely don't let the dissertation eat Michael's life. Uh, friend of the podcast, we don't want to see him, you know, become become a husk with, with the dissertation uh, floating around it like a Diary of a Spaceport Janitor or something like that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So uh, thank you, Michael. And uh, yeah, follow him at, at Warren is dead. Uh, come on again. We, I'd love yeah. to talk about more of your games. Maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll do a I've been wanting I've been threatening to do a Gamergate episode for a while. Oh, so maybe God. we can maybe we can focus it around uh, uh, Uncle Works at Nintendo um, or not or not. I'm, I was going to say <laughs> I'll, I'll be silent here. I wouldn't say like focus it around that game, but I would be happy to talk about Gamergate and sort of like the weird context in which that game found itself because of it. Um, so, someone has to talk about it eventually. No one wants yeah. to talk about it with me. I think because we're all afraid of getting swatted or something like that. But uh, um, in any case, thanks again for coming yeah. on, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Yeah.